Now, I want to invite Eli up here. Eli's going to lead us in our scripture reading this morning uh, from Colossians chapter 3. And so let's give our attention to God speaking to us through his word. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life of Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground. Absorb the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is hidden with Christ and God. Put off, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things, but now you must get rid of all such things. Seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Put on, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since it's members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful for whatever you do, whether in word or deed. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Eli. All right. Well, we are in the season of Pentecost, the season after Pentecost, more accurately, and uh, we've been sitting with all that happens in the events of that day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is given to the church, and we move into Act 5 of our big story where the church begins to take shape on the cross. Jesus gives up his spirit, but at Pentecost, it is given to, it is passed along to the followers in his early church. And we, like them, then get to explore what does it mean to have the gift of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that we have an indweller, a counselor, an advocate, a guide? Scripture says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And so, like the early followers of Jesus, we begin wondering what does it mean to be guided into all truth, to be transformed, to be counseled. And inwardly, we are being transformed through the counsel of the Holy Spirit, deeper and deeper into the image of Christ. And then outwardly, we are being sent out by that spirit wind with good news, good stories to share, good work to do, uh, that this uh, message of the, the kingdom of God may be passed along to others. And so that's what we've been exploring. We've been looking uh, primarily at the inner part of that transformation over the last few weeks, and we'll finish that up today. And then for the rest of June and July, we'll begin looking outward about, uh, you know, how Jesus is sending his church out 
into the world. Now, as we think about the inward transformation, we're going to wrap up a pattern today that we've been sitting with for the last uh, month and a half or so. It's a pattern that functions essentially as a cheat sheet for spiritual formation, for New Testament spirituality, for the spiritual life being formed in us. And Paul hints at this pattern in a handful of places in his letters, but we're drawing it out of Colossians particularly. And uh, we've been looking at this for a while. Today, we're going to wrap up that pattern. And uh, the idea is this. That at Pentecost, we are given a new spirit that we might become new creations. Not just shift our mental beliefs, not just change our behaviors or our morality, but that something radically new might be created in us. A holy spirit is given that we might become our true selves, our holy and whole selves. And so you know how this pattern works at this point. We begin by participating, by being plunged into the death of Christ dying. We are crucified with Christ, and something of our old way of life meaningfully comes to an end. But then we are participants as well in the resurrection life, the raising into new life. God comes to us and he offers us his own self and his own spirit. And if a Holy Spirit indeed lives in us, then there are certain ways I was living that no longer belong. They're no longer congruent and I am called to put those things off, therefore. And if a Holy Spirit really does live in me, then there are going to be new ways of being that feel foreign to me but actually are my truest self being beginning to rise from within, and, and so there's going to be new virtues, new uh, holiness, new wholeness that begins to emerge from inside of us as our life becomes hidden with Christ in God. Last week, we ended with that uh, challenge that Robert Mulholland gives where he says that part of putting off that old nature is to start doing uh, for Jesus' sake what we formerly did for our own. And I hope you've spent some time reflecting on that over this last week. What does it look like to do in the various contexts of my life for Jesus' sake what I used to do for my own sake? And now we come to the final piece of this pattern then. How do we put on the clothing of the new self? And uh, I want to uh, begin by saying this, that we don't do it by trying really hard to do it, <laughs> right? Some of us are list people. I'm a list person. There's nothing I love more well, my family, but second to my family, <laughs> other than my family, I love a good list, right? I, the only thing I love more than a good list is checking off a good list. You know this feeling? It's like actual like chemical release in the best of ways when you get to check a list off. So then Paul gives us a list here, and I come and I start reading this list, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Okay, compassion, check. Kindness, check. Humility, check. Let me, try, let me try really hard to be humble, because that ends well, right? <laughs> Have you ever spent time around someone who's really trying hard to be humble? Uh, it kind of backfires, right? And, um, and so this doesn't happen by trying really hard to make it happen. Uh, instead, we find that the Holy Spirit is inviting us to cooperate so that we increasingly are, are being shaped by what is actually most true. It, rather than it being imposed on us from the outside, it begins to flower from within, right? And so I love how, doc, uh, how Dallas Willard says it. He says that, that spiritual formation is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. In other words, we don't grit our teeth and try really hard to be more Christ-like. But we do have meaningful invitations that sometimes feel really daunting, 
right? Because I don't always want to be humble. I don't always want to be compassionate. There are parts of my personality that are very resistant to patience or gentleness, right? And so this new life in Christ is real work, but it's not work that we do in order to earn. Rather, Paul roots us in what is actually most deeply true and fundamental about who we are. We are chosen by God, holy and dearly loved. We're already holy because a Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We don't have to try really hard to become holy. We don't have to try really hard to earn our way to become dearly loved. This is like the words spoken over Jesus at his baptism. It is already true that we are beloved of God, holy, chosen by God, and therefore live like it. Live as if that is the most true story about your life. Right? And so Paul's inviting us deeper into that reality. This is something far deeper then than self-improvement or sin management. We are agreeing with a greater story of resurrection, and we're letting the Holy Spirit begin to do the Holy Spirit's work from within. It is as if, if we remember way back to the fall, we were created in the image of God. We've got these mirrors inside of us that reflect and retract the image of God, but, but all of that mud and the, the mar and the dirt and the, the soot is on top of us, but the Holy Spirit is like scrubbing the mirror clean that we might reflect God more and more, the most true thing about ourselves. I want to explore two ways that that might take shape in our lives, and uh, the two ways uh, as, we, as we kind of finish this pattern up uh, that I want to propose to us are restoring and forbearance and forgiveness. And so let me talk through a little bit about what I mean by that. Uh, what does it look like to put on the new self in Christ? What does it look like to agree with God's work to restore us into his image? And so first of all, restoring. Um, as many of you know, I am finishing my doctoral work, and uh, a few weeks ago I was in Iona, Scotland, which is an island off an island off an island in the middle of nowhere, and uh, this three-mile island has this rich history in Celtic Christianity. And I'm sitting there um, just thinking about all the things I'm writing about with school, and as I've found with this program, like I set out to do this project, but it turns out this project is doing its own work on me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't sign up for all that. I didn't, no one told me I was gonna have to, you know, be involved in this. But what I'm writing about is Peter, and particularly Peter's pastoral journey. So I'm writing to other pastors and, and talking about the way that Peter, over the course of his three years with Jesus, is shaped into a new kind of person, and in fact, a new kind of pastor. And one of the ways I'm sitting with this, in fact, this is kind of a newer wrinkle in how I'm thinking about it, is that throughout the course of his life with Jesus, Jesus retells Peter Peter's own story. Jesus retells us our own stories. And uh, here's how it shows up for Peter. You know, in the very beginning when he's called by Jesus to follow him, he's out, he's a fisherman, he knows how to fish, and this is in, I believe, Luke chapter 4. Uh, he's fishing with Jesus, or sorry, he's fishing by himself, and he's trying to catch these fish. And he knows how to fish, but he can't catch anything. All night long, he's been working to fish, he can't catch anything. And, and then Jesus is there, and Jesus says, why don't you try fishing on the other side of the boat, you know? So, so sure. Carpenter, who knows nothing about fishing, you tell me how to fish, right? And of course, you know how the story ends, he does this, 
and he catches this massive amount of fish, so much so that the nets begin to break, and it's this transformative encounter with Jesus, and yet what it births in Peter, what it seems to rise up in him is not wonder and amazement and gratitude, but instead shame is what comes out of Peter, and he says, hide away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So he doesn't know how to make sense of this in his story. And then he spends three years with Jesus where he is learning increasingly what does it look like to do the work of Jesus in the way of Jesus. He's being transformed along the way through his own pain, through his own struggle, through his own suffering, his own disappointment with how God is. And, and finally, ultimately, it reaches this crescendo point where he denies Jesus three times, right? And then, and then Christ is crucified, and we lose track of Peter in the story. He disappears for a bit. And when we refind him in the narrative, Peter's back fishing again, because that's what we do when our world falls apart, right? We revert, we go backward uh, to what feels safe, to what feels known. And Peter's out there and he's fishing again, right? Perhaps that shame he spoke to in his first call is just wearing on him even deeper. In fact, in the text, the, the first thing we find is that he's naked, which is, you know, this little hint in the scripture that there's some shame stuff going on, if you think back to the Garden of Eden. And so Peter's trying to fish. He's, he's out there again. He knows how to fish. He's been fishing all night. He can't catch a thing. And then he hears this voice from this stranger on the shoreline that says, Friend, have you, have you any fish? <laughs> and it's funny, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, it's like they somehow know it's Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus at the same time, right? So it's like, here's this stranger, but eventually Peter recognizes, wait a minute, I've, I've heard this before. And the voice says, go out into the deep, push out, and, and try fishing on the other side. And so, again, it's like his story's being retold to him. Peter fishes on the other side of the boat, and wouldn't you know it, the nets fill up, and they overflow. But there's some subtle things that are different this time. The net doesn't break this time like it did the first time. And Peter swims to shore, and he meets Jesus there on the beach, and Jesus is cooking up a breakfast of fish. Turns out he didn't need all the fish from Peter in the first place. He already had his own, right? And he sits with him in front of this charcoal fire, which is going to be pretty reminiscent for Peter of the fire he just denied Jesus about uh, around three, four days before. And, uh, and then he meets Jesus there, and three times Jesus says, do you love me? To match the three times that Peter said, I do not know the man. His own story is being retold to him. And um, there are things about our stories that we just didn't understand the first time. Things that happened to us, things that were done unto us. And we don't know how to always make sense of them when they happen to us. And one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about here is what does it look like to allow Jesus to retell us what we did not understand the first time. And so there I am in Iona in Scotland, and I just began noticing this fundamental sense of inadequacy that I've, I've carried most of my life. And it stems back to middle school. Everything stems back to middle school. <laughs> we all still live in middle school in certain ways. Bless you if you're in middle school. Um, for me in middle school, there were these moments where the message that I received was that I am alien, I am subhuman. There's everybody else and then there's me. And I do not belong. And there was that moment where I went over to play with Nick and Nick gave me that look that didn't say a word but said very clearly, you are not welcome here. 
And there was that word that Danny said to me that I still remember 35 years later. And there's that moment that Russell caught me on the playground and punched me in the face, and to be honest, I probably deserved it, but that's another story. <laughs> and these were not traumatic, but they were traumatic. And they, they stick with me. And in fact, every day, many times a day, they seem to be the true story. They seem to tell me the true story. And so there I am in Iona. I'm at this thing called the bay at the back of the ocean. I'm overlooking. There's just nothing in front of me except thousands of miles of ocean all the way to Canada. And I start thinking about Nick and Danny and Russell. And there's these rocks that have just been poured onto the, the shore and then back into the ocean and washed off more. And they're just, you know, a millennia upon millennia of just getting washed up onto the shore. They're so smooth. They're like glass and uh, just pick up a couple of these rocks and, you know, just start asking, Jesus, where were you when Nick did that? Right, he was there. Have you considered this? The worst moment of your story, Jesus was there. And not in a, not in a helpless way, not in a bystander way, but as a fellow griever, as a co-sufferer, he was there. So I throw the rock into the ocean for Nick, and I throw the rock in the ocean for Danny and for Russell as just little ways of, of letting this go and asking Jesus, what, what do you have to say? I know what they had to say, but what did you have to say that I was not able to hear or understand in that moment? That I misinterpreted my own story. Will you rightly interpret my story for me? Will you restory me? And uh, just had this sense of God saying, Jordan, what is true is that in the image of God, I made you. Which is fundamentally at odds with you are subhuman, you are alien, you do not belong. Those two things cannot coexist. So Jesus tells the truer story and invites us to live out of the truer story. And that's not easy. In fact, the next day, found myself in a shame spiral, <laughs> right? This stuff takes a life, but we are being told a better story in the light of what Jesus has to say. And second, forgiveness, forbearance. It appears at first in this list in Colossians chapter 3 that Paul is just giving us a big list of things that look like the new life in Christ. And so he says, you know, put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility. If you go to the next one for me, Alan. Uh, you know, put on all of these things. And then after you've put on all of these things, you know, also bear with one another and forgive one another. That's how it looks in English. But in the Greek, Dr. Mulholland uh, points out that what actually is being done here by Paul, what essentially is being said is uh, that the structure is something different. Paul is saying to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, to be patient, that those are the places that the new life of Christ is put on, but how it is put on is within the context of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Those are the contexts for which the new life in Christ actually is proven out in our lives. It is not in my prayer closet that Christ's new life is formed. It is in my relationships. It's in the way that I show up to you. And yes, we can go to the bay at the back of the ocean and have an encounter with God, and that's wonderful, but we don't have to go all that way 
to find the new life in Christ showing up in us. All we have to do is know a single other human being, and right there we're going to have to have opportunities to bear with one another and to forgive one another, right? Like, have you ever met another person? <laughs> we have to bear with each other. We have to forgive each other. It, it, it's, it's, it shows up every single day in ordinary life. I don't have to go looking for deep spiritual breakthroughs. I just need to have a few friends, and I will have opportunities to bear with and to forgive. And when we talk about forgiveness, I'm mindful of the fact that some of us have experienced, you know, real trauma and, and real abuse. Injustice is done unto us. And relational pain and generational pain. And so forgiveness is not a light or flippant thing. We do not forgive and forget. We forgive and we keep remembering. Anything that really requires forgiveness, we don't forget it. It keeps staying with us keeps marking us. And we may always remember, we may always hurt, but forgiveness allows us to name the wound so that the wound does not continue to name us. It doesn't continue to be the most fundamental thing marking or shaping my story. And so as we close, what I want to do is just walk through a case study of this entire pattern we've been going through over the last six weeks so that we can kind of give it a real-life example of how this may take shape before we come to the table. And so my first job in a church, I was 19, and uh, I was working as a youth pastor at this church, and you know, what did I know? I was 19. Uh, turns out that church was really unhealthy, really toxic. I mean, like abusive in the spiritual, religious, financial, and emotional ways. And the end of my time there was so toxic that I was physically escorted off the property and told to never return. Um, and, and the only thing I had done wrong was say, I'm going to leave the church and go to a different one. But you don't do that in those kind of contexts, right? So it was like, you do not speak to anyone here and never return. And it hurt. And I carried this deep, long resentment, this deep-seated bitterness toward those who had wronged me. And when you're in those sort of situations, the false self runs wild. <laughs> all my bitterness, all my pain, all my frustration, all of the they did this and I did this, and the false self runs wild for a while, and then, you know, one day, one moment, the whisper of God, hey, Jordan, it's been long enough. It's time to put on forgiveness. And now the false self really runs wild, <laughs> right? Like, are you kidding me, God? Do you remember what they did? I'm the victim, and you want me to just act like it's okay? And in time, you know, God whispers something like, no, it wasn't okay. The wrong done to you was not okay, but I am asking you to continue becoming who I have created you to be. So the wrongs done against you find their place in a larger story. They're not the largest story. But then, of course, the religious false self kicks in, right? And I'm like, God, I just want to remind you before we talk about this whole forgiveness thing that Ezekiel 34 talks about false shepherds in the church and those who attack the vulnerable sheep. And, you know, these are wolves, not shepherds. And, and they are a brood of vipers, God, right? Like, I'm, you know, and, and God just lets me get it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he says. And I'll be just in handling that. And I'll be consistent in setting wrong things right. You don't need to excuse them, but you do need to forgive them and release them into my care. 
And time goes by, and time goes by, and ignore it for a while. Watch Netflix so I don't have to think about it for a while. But there's Jesus. He's knocking on the door. Just patient. Just knocking on the door. And I try my final Hail Mary. You know, God, this doesn't matter. I have moved on. I'm not even around these people anymore. I'm doing other stuff now. That was years ago, God. I'm a good person. I don't need to forgive them. (laughs) Why does it matter? And God says it matters because unforgiveness is a primary trait of the false self. You can't handle the way you were mistreated because it was an attack on your identity. But I'm reminding you that their treatment of you was never what defined your wholeness in the first place. And so you do not need retaliation or bitterness to be whole. This is going to keep mattering in your story, Jordan. But things better than bitterness get to bear witness to what was done to you and how it shapes you. And so I call you to take up the cross, which means to forgive, to follow me just like I did. Follow my example. And it dawns on me afresh that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And so, okay, God. Help me to do this. Help me. I don't know how. I I want to trust you in this. And Mulholland says the moment we touch that doorknob to open up the door of our heart and let Jesus in, it is as if like a fresh grace empowers the situation. And we share a meal with Jesus there. And, and we learn to let go of the false self. We stop resuscitating it. We stop reanimating it. And it does involve a dying, but it is a dying in a holy Saturday way. And that part of my heart in time is being resurrected into a new life that is hidden with Christ in God. And some sort of healing happens. And I show up to you still bearing the scars, but they're not defining me in the same way. They're still there, but they're telling a different story now, right? And it's not simple. Temptation reappears to reharbor the bitterness. And I remind myself that forgiveness is a choice and an ongoing process. It takes time, but healing is happening. And eventually, the new nature of Christ increasingly flowers from within, and I'm clothed with love and compassion. And without minimizing the wrong that was done, I'm able to see that those people who wronged me are human too. They're not less than human. They need mercy. And I'm able to release them into the care of Jesus, and it looks a bit like compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility flowering up in me, and forgiveness heals the hurt and washes away the bitterness, and the sting goes away. It still hurts, but in a different sort of way. And now I'm not afraid to run into them in Starbucks anymore, right? You know that feeling, that person who did that thing, and you see them in the grocery store, and you just want to crawl into a hole, uh, but, but we're being healed. And this no longer has to control and dominate the story. It can take its place in a larger story, and that way it is its own form of restoring. The true self, hidden with Christ, is coming back alive in a meaningful way. And it may take years, it may take a whole life, but it begins by just noticing, by paying attention, and in fact, I'll just invite us to do this now. You can close your eyes and just get in touch with your own heart, your own story. It begins with this question of where is Jesus knocking? 
on the door of my heart. Ask him that now. Talk with him about that now. God, sometimes following you feels like a dying. And everything in the false self screams against it. But we thank you that we also will be raised with Christ. And that in a meaningful way, you are healing us. so that the scars that we have actually become part of the redemptive story and healing for the sake of others who have been wounded. Keep retelling us our own stories. Tell us what we missed and got wrong the first time. Tell us that the nets were never broken, that they were always whole in you, and that you have what you need for us on the beach, and that, yes, we love you, but you love us and you invite us into tomorrow, into new life with Christ. Amen.